Hi, uh, welcome to the New Voting Project. My name is Kanal, your host. And today we have a very special guest who joined us, uh, Assembly Member, California State Assembly Member, Bill Quirk, uh, who represents the 20th District. He's an elected official. He's been a longtime resident of the Bay Area. Thank you so much, Assembly Member, for taking the time to be here with me. I can understand you're very busy, <laughs> so I do appreciate you taking the time. Great. Uh, cool. Thank you. Yeah, no. Uh, let's get into these questions, shall we? Um, so just for the viewers, talk a little bit about your background, how you became a, a California State Assemblyman. What was that journey like? And touch on how your college experience prepared you for that journey. I guess we'd, uh, we could start with college. Okay. Um, I was uh, an engineering major in uh, applied physics at Columbia, New York City. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, at the time, I took my first political steps. I worked on the campaign for uh, John Lindsay to become uh, mayor of New York. He was a, what was called a liberal Republican at the time. I was a Republican raised in a Republican family. And uh, that was my first political experience. Um, I wouldn't say that uh, my college prepared me terribly well uh, for the, well, it got a good background in physics, uh, did well in graduate school, uh, published a thesis, um, went out to California to work at uh, Caltech as a postdoctoral fellow. Wow. Yeah. So then I was, I was there two years, and at that time I walked precincts for George McGovern uh, to get him the nomination for uh, president from the Democratic Party. He lost overwhelmingly, of course, to, uh, to Richard Nixon, but he was the... Uh, it was the Bernie Sanders of his day, the furthest out to the left of uh, any of the candidates. And he was from South Dakota. Wow. So after that, I, uh, well, I had done my thesis work at the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies in New York. And I went back there after uh, 1972, after my two years of postdoc at Caltech, and uh, converted over to climate science. And I helped develop uh, NASA's first climate model. Wow. I did not know that. So you're a scientist at heart. Oh, yeah. Well, and my PhD in astrophysics was the first calculation of a cloud of gas uh, being into a spiral galaxy like the one behind my head. here. Wow. That's so. very interesting. Did, did, that, did that experience ever help when you were addressing climate change and proposing legislation in the assembly? Well, well, so I became a climate scientist. So that definitely, uh, this was in 1972 that I wow. became a climate scientist. So I was working on uh, greenhouse gases and what we call then uh, CO2 warming. Uh, but generally, the, there were a lot of uncertainties then. So we were careful not to oversell what we did. We said that this was certainly possible, but it would be a while before we could know it. The guess was that in the 1990s, we'd start seeing effects. Um, we didn't, 
at least at the beginning of the 90s, mainly because of Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines going off and cooling off the whole atmosphere. But already the science was well developed by then. In fact, President Clinton in 1992 was elected and uh, in 1993 tried to implement a carbon tax. So we were pretty well aware of what was going on then. But in 72, we, when I first started in climate, we weren't. Uh, so my next step uh, was to become a, um, a uh, consultant, uh, management consultant with McKinsey and Company. And that did, there's certainly a lot of politics in that. Yeah, I could believe it still there is. Yeah. But you know, there's, there's politics in everything. No matter what you're doing, you're working with people, and it's politics. Um, any job you have has politics. Working at, uh, at McDonald's, that's going to have some politics in it. And some jobs are more political than others. Yeah. Um, anyway, we uh, came out to California, and I worked, worked at Lawrence Livermore Lab, first as a client scientist, and then as a nuclear weapons designer. Uh, and uh, I was there, I was responsible for uh, breaking a deadlock in negotiations for the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, as well as showing that we could reuse our plutonium parts, which had been manufactured in, at Rocky Flats near Denver. And it had already had a major fire threatening to send plutonium oxide uh, across the Denver metropolitan area. And there were people there trying to stop the trains that would come into Rocky Flats. And I actually met some of them later on. And I said, well, you couldn't close it, but I could. And I showed we could just reuse the parts we had. And that helped lead to the shutdown of Rocky Flats. So a number of things that I was able to do, mainly because I wasn't your typical um, cold warrior uh, as a nuclear weapons designer. I was all in favor of getting rid of nuclear testing, of uh, uh, basically closing down as much of the nuclear infrastructure as we could. And from a position of being a nuclear weapons designer, I was able to accomplish that. Uh, later on in my career, I became an expert on foreign nuclear weapons programs. Wow. I was an inspector in Iraq. Um, I was able to show that the Iraqis, well, they certainly had a nuclear weapons program, had not gotten this, had gotten a bit further uh, than people had thought that they had a better theoretical understanding. And of course, they they came quite close to getting nuclear weapons thanks to help uh, from Pakistan, uh, from uh, uh, Dr. Khan, who had uh, developed the uranium. Uh, 235 production facility in Pakistan, and then exported the uh, technology across the world, but most notably to to uh, Iraq. Wow! So, so you have had an incredible journey in that case. Then, so where does where does politics in in the sense of running for office, um, becoming an elected official, whether it be city council or or state assembly? Where did that come into the mix? 
Well, first of all, I was doing all sorts of volunteer work. Okay. I already mentioned um, the John Lindsay campaign. I switched over to become a Democrat in uh, 1972. And then I, uh, I was 27 then. Sounds about right. Well, 26. Anyway, um, the, uh, the point there is that I, I became a, a, um, an ardent Democrat at that point. And I uh, kept on volunteering. And we moved to Hayward uh, starting in 1988. I worked on all the presidential, gubernatorial, senatorial campaigns. Uh, just getting the um, precinct workers and managing precinct workers for the campaigns. And there was a lot more precinct work then than there is now. And a lot, well, we could actually make phone calls. That's just about becoming possible. Uh, but there was also just a lot more uh, work in pre on precinct workers. We had a lot more of them then than we do now. Then, um, so I, I think that my desire to work in politics comes from being the oldest of seven children in a family where my father was never at home. He was a workaholic and an alcoholic, I think. And that's due to his experience in World War II. And he certainly had, though they didn't even have a name for it at the time, but uh, he was just uh, destroyed post-traumatic shock syndrome. He was just destroyed by the war. A lot of a lot of young men were. Anyway, that was unfortunate for him and for the family. Anyway, so I became the surrogate father, just used to taking charge and trying to make a difference. And that was reflected in the work I did as a volunteer. What I noticed after a while is when people would come to, and I managed people's campaigns for school board, for city council, and I realized I knew a lot more than they did about any of these things. Right. And I would brief them on the issues and explain everything to them. And uh, and around 2004, I thought, that's, that's enough. I'm going to run myself. But I waited until my youngest was a senior in high school because I just didn't want to miss things that my son was doing. Even then, I got elected in March of his senior year, and I still miss things. But not that much. So I was on city council eight years. And then in 2012, there was an opening in the assembly, ran for that. This is my 10th year. I've decided I could, could go run one more time. Decided not to. It's a major effort. You're away from your family a lot. And there are other things that I can do. Uh, my objective would be to work with scientists at the universities and national labs to have their research uh, directed in ways that would help policymakers and make policymakers aware of that research. So that's that's my objective uh, in retirement. Well, that's a great objective. No, definitely. And I guess the essence of this podcast is to kind of discuss voting and, and youth empowerment. And and I guess you you've been in a part of so many elections, you know, having run multiple campaigns and also taking part in them yourselves, why do you think throughout these years that voting is important? Like, why is it that that voting, you know, kind of moves moves democracies and, like you said, in, informs policy changes? 
Yes, it does. So, first of all, people will argue, oh, my vote's not going to matter. Well, maybe not. But although there are some elections decided by a flip of the coin because the votes were equal or decided by one or the school board race by six votes. Right. So these things are all, they can be closer than you think. But regardless of that, the people who are traditional Democrats vote less often than people who are not. In particular, youth votes at like a quarter of the rate uh, people in my age bracket, people over uh, 55. Um, if you look at the demographics, you know, it's like 10% um, of the voters are, I'm making up the number, over a certain age, but they, they'll account for 20% of the votes tab tabulated. So unless youth gets out and votes in higher numbers and that's what we're trying to do is to get youth out, to get minorities out. I mean, white people and highly educated Asians tend to vote in numbers much greater than they are in the population. Uh, as a matter of fact, in my district, it's 30% white, but the majority of the voters are white. So you've really got to work to get out the uh, progressive, liberal, younger vote, minority vote, poor people vote. Again, more highly educated, more people vote, the more, high, more highly educated they are. So it is extremely important to get the person who's less motivated to vote out to vote if their priorities are going to be felt. And so, yeah, maybe your one little vote doesn't matter uh, in most elections, but it's when your whole group feels that way and doesn't vote, then we've got big problems. So your real task should be, and it's what you're doing, is to get more people out to vote. Yeah, definitely. And I guess when people vote, they're voting for propositions, right? They're voting for things. And that's usually what I, what I tell folks, is that if you're not making the decision, somebody's making it for you. And I'd rather you cast your decision than have somebody else choose for you, because nobody likes to choose for you. I want to choose my own ice cream flavor. I'm not going to let my sister do it, you know? Um, but the point being... The next step that I usually offer and that I usually say is that you get engaged, you get on a campaign, right? You go knock some doors. And the final step I always say is to run for office if you're really motivated. And you've ran for several offices. And so I want to ask, what is the importance of, of running for office in, in any capacity at any level of government? Why is that the initiative young people should take? So when you're... It's, it's interesting. When I was on city council, uh, I was one vote of seven. But so, you know, and I was regularly working on the council to pass things. And with you're not on the council, you have to find four votes out of seven. And you are on the council, you have to find three. Um, so you, you, you only gain a small number that way. But what you can do is set the agenda. So in city council, uh, you'll have an issue. It'll come before you for questions and direction to staff. And as you study this, you can say, staff, I'd like you to go in this particular direction. Um, and then uh, you have another meeting on it and another, and finally it comes up for a vote. And you can get, and this took me a year or two on city council, 
but you can get to, to the point where, gee, this is pretty good. I'd like to go it in X direction. Um, so I worked, and the mayor helped me on this, to be the person who made the motion on the final business. And there were two things you wanted to do. One, make sure you got at least four votes, preferably five or six or seven, but at least four. And you would, you would certainly make that, you know, you would see where the votes were and make the uh, motion according so that you could bring more people along. And you'd also try to get in the things that you wanted to get in. The other thing I found is that quite often council members, I won't name names here, but some of them wouldn't understand what staff had just told them and they wouldn't understand it. So I was the one who was there and would explain things. And so that's, that's also important if you're a, a, a bright person, if you understand, so you can both help people understand what's going on, see the consequences, shape the motion, and that's something you can't do uh, if you're not on city council. And, and it's similar in the assembly, only there you're one vote out of 80, and you need to get another 40 to get anything out of the assembly and another 21 in the Senate. And you gotta get the governor to sign it. But in having the, mo having the bill yourself, you can work with, so typically it goes through one or two uh, committees, um, sometimes three committees, and you've got to work with the committee chairs and the committee members to get a bill that they find acceptable and still preserve what you want. And that's really the, I'd say the number one thing you want to do. Now I'm also chair of a committee. Mm. Um, I had a bill come through where we do know that a lot of plastic comes out of our clothes, nylon, orlon, et cetera. A lot of that comes out of our clothes and goes out of through the washing machine into the sewer lines. But very little of that gets into, uh, almost none, in fact, gets into our water because it's taken up in the plant. But where is it taken up in the plant and does it end up, if we're going to put this, uh, the, what's called the biosolids, the fertilizer, onto uh, fields, is this a big impact? And we don't know that yet. And I was hoping to have a bill on it, but we weren't able to measure whether or not the plastic ends up in the biosolids. There's a method for doing that, but it's, it's going to be a couple years away. I'm hoping someone will take that up again. There was a suggestion that we put filters in washing machines, and I refer to that as the 25-year solution because it takes 25 years to wash up to get rid of a washing machine and uh, come up with a new one that has a filter. So besides the fact it would be hard to get past, uh, I asked the member, uh, I told the member that I just wasn't supportive of that because it would just take too long. I tried to follow up this year but we're not able to do the measurements we need to see where the plastic actually goes. One thing we do, we do know is that it doesn't go out directly into the water. Right. But again, you know, it's very hard. I had people showing me this article where some people in Toronto had shown that there were huge numbers of particles, plastic particles, uh, coming out of these washing machines. 
And they said, see, it's, it's going out into the water. It goes through the sewage plants and doesn't disappear. Well, actually, it does disappear. We don't know whether it's the lines going up to the sewage plant or in the sewage plant itself, which I think is most likely. Uh, but until we can do some measurements, uh, getting everybody to pay more for their washing machine and waiting 25 years for a solution doesn't seem like the right way to go. So that's the sort of thing you can do. There was another issue, again, as committee chair, uh, a very good environmental group wanted to say there's certain things you can't put in cosmetics. And the U.S. doesn't really regulate this area strictly. What we came up with, and there were real arguments as to what was in there and what wasn't, and what was dangerous and what wasn't. What we came up with, and I became a joint author on this, was we're going to take the European Union standards. They've done the science. The people in Europe who manufacture um, cosmetics, the same companies as do here, um, they're able to meet these standards. Let's just bring them here. And everybody was happy with that. So, and uh, we're looking at some other uh, bills this year uh, where we're going to look at um, getting the European standards, which tend to be stricter, uh, but I think more scientifically based than what we do here. Because there, well, here, you have to prove something's uh, a problem and otherwise it stays on forever. There you got to prove it's not a problem. Right. So their, their rules are stricter. And once they have a model that is that's something that industry can agree with, let's have it here in California and give them plenty of time, several years to, to meet that standard. So those are the sorts of things I was able to do as chair of a committee. Um, and uh, yeah. again, and so do you don't you don't regret any of the decisions you made when I mean you've been in office for what since 2004 I mean it's 2022 it's 18 years you right in elected capacity do you have any I mean I've evolved um a very good member Mark Stone wanted to get rid of filters on cigarettes at the time I wasn't ready to support it now I view that very differently um, he was worried about litter. Uh, I'm more worried about the fact that cigarette butts, and, and there is a huge amount of litter from cigarette butts. Oh, yeah. But I've become much more worried about the impact of smoking and how getting rid of filters could lead to fewer people smoking. And also that, that what was litter, which is a pain, but maybe not a big environmental impact, um, we now have evidence that uh, some of that. Uh, uh, it actually ends up out in the ocean and becomes part of the microplastic. So, you know, I I was against the concept initially several years ago, and I'm for it now. So, yeah, we, we do change our minds. Um, the other thing is there can be subtle differences in bills. So there was a plastic bill that said, basically, you can use any plastic you want as long as it's recyclable. Well, I hate to say this. But being recyclable doesn't mean it's not a problem. In the third world, there not only is no collection for recycling, there is no collection for garbage. So everything ends up in the water and goes out to sea. And there, there are efforts made to change that. The World Bank is working on it. But 
So everything that we develop here in the way of plastics gets exported over there, even if we, in theory, could recycle it. Right. And even if it is recyclable, doesn't mean it's not polluting. Our clothes are, are in fact, not through the sewage system, but through the stormwater system, we see the number one pollutant comes from tires. Think about it. Your tires wear down. Where does that plastic go? And it mainly is plastic. And the answer is it goes off in the stormwater. That's the number one pollutant in our area. Uh, further, um, for some reason, uh, there is uh, probably from dryers. And I kind of wonder if it'd be easier to get better filters and dryers. But um, from dryers, I think, is where we're getting, or maybe it's just wear and tear on articles. We really need to figure that out to be able to stop it. But from our clothes, it's also a major polluter, as are particles from uh, the uh, filters of cigarettes. So uh, it's important to understand the issue. And that's, you know, you asked what prepared me for this. I'm somebody who believes in evidence. I was talking with a great member. And I, he said, well, you know, PFAS, we looked at that a few years ago. You weren't ready to make any um, pronouncements on it. And I said, well, if there's good science in the last four years, um, I can change my mind. Oh, he said, New York, New York State's done it. They passed a law. I said, that's not science. And, and in fact, the science had gone there and the regulatory agency uh, told us rather than, well, my initial thing was, let's ask the regulatory agency to do a study. Um, and, and the author decided not to do that. Uh, we got back to the regulatory agency and said, yes, it's a problem. Uh, we don't need to do the science. It's pretty well proven. Please uh, just, we'd rather you do the legislation. So we did that in the PFAS. These are- um, Oh, PFAS in the water? Yeah. 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 It's an issue. Uh, what adjacent yeah, fluorated compounds that are used yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in fire departments, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, science changed. I changed my mind. And that's that's really important to have that flexibility. But you can see how managing a, um, a committee that deals with science, but also I'm the kind of person, it, you know, we're looking at tax law. I can do arithmetic. And every single deduction ends up helping rich people, deduction from taxes, more than poor people. Prop 13, because white people own all these million dollar homes and Latinos own these 200 or 300 or $400,000 homes. Prop 13 helps a lot more rich white people a lot more than poor Latino people. Um, and any deduction you put in, first of all, half the people in the state don't pay state income taxes. So they're not helped at all. And then the people who get the biggest break are the people who are taxed like the 13% level, who are the millionaires. And they brought a bill forward to me um, saying, well, teachers should get a tax break when they supply their students with materials. Hmm. And my comment was, unless you've married a millionaire, uh, as a teacher, um, and I mean, when I say a millionaire, somebody making a million dollars a year, you just don't get very much back. And most teachers probably wouldn't pay anything more than a few percent, would get only a couple percent of that back. 
they, they make enough to pay taxes, but not at a high level. So those, you know, I can do arithmetic. I'm known as the great uh, executioner in the uh, Revan tax group. Well, yeah. And I guess in my, in my last question would be, what is your advice um, to, the next, to the next generation? Uh, on on voting, on impacts, on running for office. Uh, I mean, these are issues that that we're going to be right. Fighting. Well, as I said before, and I gave examples from my own life, if you run for office, you can set the agenda. You can determine the, and this is really really important. Um, yeah, you, you know, this particular issue might have gotten four votes anyway, but you, as a member of the city council, or forty one votes in the assembly. You, as a member of the assembly, determined the direction that this went in. So you just have a lot more. Now, why should we have young people? Because young people have different ideas. And it is good to get um, more young people. I've mentioned to you that a lot of times young people are elected to school boards. That's something voters like to see. They think, ha, ah, here's somebody who has expertise. They just went through our high school. And City uh, San Lorenzo uh, School Board just appointed a senior at uh, UC Berkeley. And I've seen other uh, students get elected um, or uh, people just out of, uh, out of college get elected. So that's a good place to start. You are an expert. Right. You know, don't, don't worry about all those people with fancy degrees. You know what the hell it was. So that's, that's a first step. If you're really young and in your 20s and you want to run, that's a good place to start. Um, as you get it, the thing is, as you want to go further up, at least, by the way, school board's probably the most important office in the state. And it's also the toughest because of the questions are so emotional. That's why you saw three people recalled in San Francisco. It's a very emotional and people get very upset. So it is the toughest office. And perhaps the most, well, I think it may be the most important. Um, and then as you go on, something like city council or county supervisor or assembly or senate, it's really important to get involved in a couple ways if you're going to go for one of those offices. One is volunteering to help your party, hopefully the Democratic Party, elect good people. Um, and it's also very important to serve on committees. And a lot of people actually wanted me to run for school board when I ended up running for city council because I'd served on a lot of school board committees. Um, I also served on the library committee and a bunch of other committees for the city. So I had experience there when I finally decided to uh, run for city council. Uh, so you want to both learn the politics because when you, you work for somebody's campaign, you can see how it's done and you can see the people are good at it and not as good at it. So you learn how to do the politics and by serving on various committees, you learn what the business is. Uh, generally speaking, it's easier to run for and you'll be more successful if you've taken those steps. And you can do that in just a few years. Right. Uh, I, I took a long time. I took 16 years before I went from uh, here in California before I went from working on political campaigns to running myself. But you could do that in just a few years, serve on some commissions and committees, and uh, you'll be prepared. So, and the younger you are, that you start this, the better, 
Uh, it just gives you a chance, well, first of all, maybe to do this before you have little kids running around the house. But, uh, but we do have lots of members now. We have one woman gave birth to triplets while she was uh, uh, on the, in the assembly and is still serving several years later. Fortunately, she's married to a woman. I think only a woman um, could do this. Uh, us men, I don't know. We, uh, but anyway, uh, but there are lots of people who've had kids while they're here. It's just not something I want to do. Anyway, whatever you want to do, make sure that you do it well. That is, if you're going to run for office, and we could talk on another station about what you should do when you're running for office. But the big thing is to know how it's done by the best people and to be and to find out what the office that you're running for would really be like. Yeah, no, that's very solid advice. Thank you for that. Um, and thank you for taking the time uh, to come onto the show. Uh, I do appreciate it. Um, and I think people will find the perspective valuable. You spend so much time in the assembly. I bet you've seen some things happen. Um, and, and I think people will find that invaluable. So thank you so much. Yeah, by the way, let me add one more thing. Go ahead. The group of people that I work with in Sacramento, the politicians, mm -hmm. are very good at politics, much better than people who are on nonprofit boards. And what they, they don't take things personally. Uh, they know that if, you, if they don't get your vote this time, they can get it the next time. And they tend to be pretty honest. Doesn't always happen that way, but it's the best job I've ever had. It's the best group of people I've ever worked with. Uh, I would say the Hayward City Council, while I was there, was also a very good group of politicians who knew how to do politics. And I've been on nonprofit boards that have been a mess because they're not good politicians. So, and what's a good politician? For me, it's somebody who doesn't take things seriously and wants to make, excuse me, personally, they should take them seriously, but not personally, okay. and wants to make a difference, wants to make a difference. That's what makes a good politician, not taking it personally, wanting to make a difference, uh, getting to know your colleagues, being friendly with them, and then using your intellect to make up your mind, and not just believing what one person says or another, really looking at things. And that's that's what you need to be a good politician. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, I think I'd agree. That's what makes a good public servant uh, yeah. at the end of the day. Uh, so no, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I think the California State Assembly has been blessed uh, with, with your tutelage in some ways. And, and I, I, I'm excited to see what you do from behind the scenes. We shall see. Yeah. No, thank you so much. Please take care. Bye-bye.